Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is Stephanie, and I'm a member here, and I'll be reading this morning's passage to you. Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord, and shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, as, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was Ill, ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Stephanie. If you would pray with me before we look to God's word. Father, use this text, we pray, to give us a better sense of your heart and your desire for a particularly challenging area of church life and ministry, that being particularly spiritual leadership, what it is, how to do it well like your son Jesus and particularly how to avoid the, the many dangers and, and pitfalls that we're so familiar with in this area. We pray uh, that you would work by your spirit through your word this morning to, to, to grow us, to make us more mature and healthy as a church in the way that we think about these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mark Driscoll. James McDonald, Carl Lentz, Robbie Zacharias, Bill Hybels. These are the names of prominent Christian leaders who have recently disqualified themselves very publicly. Uh, especially in the past 10 or so years, we've seen a flurry of Christian pastors and teachers, both with very public personas and even also some right here in our community, fall in moral failure. Uh, the fallout of these moral failures has, of course, been very damaging. And many have speculated as to the reasons for all these moral failures. For instance, maybe uh, men are just the problem, and what we need is more female leadership. Uh, or maybe all leaders are basically just narcissists, and we should just give up on the concept altogether. Maybe have some house churches without any leaders. Don't look to anyone in particular to care for our souls. Or maybe we should be skeptical of these accusations. Maybe they're just the result of sort of a victim culture and everyone kind of 
being too concerned about everyone else's feelings. Well, alternatively, this morning, I want to suggest that maybe this is a very old problem that God has spoken to directly to help us avoid. And he's done it even right here in some ways in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. Uh, Two weeks ago, Paul introduced us to the idea, which is at the very center of this entire letter and the argument in the letter. First, back in verses 2 to 3, you'll see he told us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's a core idea. Then he pointed, though, to King Jesus crucified here on earth as the ultimate cosmic example of this kind of humility. He specifically explained that before Christ came down from heaven, he was already transcendent. He he was already equal with God, but rather than grasping on to that heavenly status or that heavenly advantage, he willingly emptied himself of it. Uh, Rather than seeking his own interest, he obeyed the will of the Father even to the point of death, all for the sake of seeking and serving and forgiving us. And therefore, it is for those specific reasons, Paul says, that God has highly exalted him as this heavenly king of all creation. Again, not because he insisted that everyone respect him, even though he certainly deserved their respect, but actually precisely because he didn't insist that they respect them. He humbled himself. He poured himself out. And so here's the idea, is that we can have this same mind among us as now members of this new spiritual body he's created in his death and resurrection. We can lay aside our interests and our advantage to serve one another, even if it costs us a great deal in the same way that it costs Christ a great deal. The the basic message of Philippians is that we can press on in this upward life because we are called to share both in Christ's suffering and in his exalted upward life. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. It is a heavenly, God-honoring thing to be humbled and to be made low here on earth. Then in last week's passage, he explained what this kind of upward life should look like in the life of a church. In particular, first, it should not look, he said, like grumbling or disputes. Uh, Instead, it should look like humble people working out their salvation together humbly, with fear and trembling, with reverence for God. And as they do this, the idea is that it's God who's at work among them, even through their suffering, for the sake of his good pleasure. So this is where we've been the past few weeks. And then here in our passage, Paul turns to apply all of these concepts to this church's relationship with leaders. In one sense, this kind of reads almost like an email, doesn't it? It kind of reads like you're in someone's personal communication. Paul's kind of just sharing his plans, right? I'm not going to send you Timothy quite yet. I want to, but I still need him right now. But I am going to send you Epaphroditus back to you because he was really sick. He heard that you found out. He doesn't want you to be worried, right? I imagine as you heard this read, some of you probably were wondering, I mean, we might, we might be in and out today. Is he really going to preach a whole sermon on this? 
Not so fast. Not so fast that we take a closer look and just consider what this text means in relation to what Paul's been talking about. I think we're going to see, in addition to just sharing these plans, Paul's doing something very important. In particular, he is commending these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as examples of the upward life that we've been talking about. He wants us to see the kind of spiritual leaders we all need as Christians and how we should relate to them. But to start, it's going to be really helpful, especially given all the details, just talk a little bit about the background of this letter, the probably historical context. Long story short, if you take a look back at Acts chapter 16, there are some details that are particularly relevant to our passage today. Uh, in particular, in the beginning of Acts chapter 16, this apostle Paul who wrote the letter meets a man named Timothy, who he refers to in the letter. And he asks Timothy in that beginning of the chapter to accompany him on his next missionary journey. Then, uh, along with a few others, Paul and Timothy set off together, and eventually they wind up in Philippi. And the rest of that chapter is the story of these men working together to plant this church in Philippi, which Paul is now writing to probably years later. In other words, the Philippians had some history with this man, Timothy, uh, which is why Paul can so confidently say, you know of his proven worth, right? You have seen how he serves with me in the gospel. The Philippians knew this because Timothy was with Paul when he was there to help start that church. That detail is pretty important and also fairly clear. And Paul readily admits he has no one else, else like Timothy uh, who would, in particular, be, quote, genuinely concerned for their welfare. And, and really, if anything, this is the reason he doesn't send Timothy, actually, back to them, because while he was imprisoned, he had need of Timothy to support him and to encourage him. And apparently, there was not a long list of good candidates to support him in this way. Uh, notice he says, I don't have anyone like Timothy, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to point out that sounds a lot like the exact opposite of that central idea we just talked about in verses 2 and 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but count the interests of others more important than yourself. These pastor friends, leaders, apparently did the opposite. So in short, as it relates to Timothy, Paul's basically saying this. Look, I get it. I'm glad you guys want a visit from Timothy. Uh, he's an exceptional leader. He's worth honoring. But listen, for that reason, I kind of I need him right now. So I'm going to hang on to Timothy. Uh, and then Paul shifts his attention to a man named Epaphroditus. Now, this is where some more details even start to click into focus about the circumstances behind this letter. Notice, in addition to calling Epaphroditus his brother, his fellow worker, and his fellow soldier, right, in this cosmic war we've been talking about the last few weeks, Paul also refers to him as, quote, your messenger and minister to my need. In other words, Epaphroditus was from this church in Philippi, and apparently this church had sent him as a messenger to care for Paul when they heard he was in prison. So as hard as it is to really piece together all the details behind a letter like this, here are a few that we could be fairly certain of, just to kind of narrate the story. First, after planting this church and being thrown in prison there in Philippi, Paul and Timothy move on. They, they get out of prison. They move on to continue planting churches elsewhere. Then much later, when the Philippians hear he's in prison again, they send him Epaphroditus. Now, it could be that they sent Epaphroditus to actually request that Timothy would come and visit. Some scholars have wondered that. Seems possible. Hard to say. 
But either way, chances are, whatever report Epaphroditus gave to Paul, chances are it was not particularly encouraging. Uh, Even just based on the content of the letter, we've already seen, he probably reported things like grumbling, disputes, disunity in this church as a result of the suffering Paul was facing, as a result of their persecution. And then at some point, though, Epaphroditus gets sick, he nearly dies. It doesn't tell us how, but apparently he learns that the Philippians got word of his illness. And so Paul is sending him back to Philippi. He's sending him back with this letter, more than likely, but without Timothy, which probably would have been a disappointment. So this is what we can confidently gather about the circumstances here. It's kind of a thank you letter for sending Epaphroditus. But in this reflection on Epaphroditus, I think we're meant to notice his upward qualities. First, again, he's a brother in this new spiritual family we share in the upward life with. He's a fellow soldier in this cosmic war we're engaged in. We're also supposed to notice this sort of complex web of everyone's interest for everyone else. It's just, it's working here like Paul intends for it to work. First, Epaphroditus was clearly concerned for Paul. This is why he would have went to minister to his needs. Then, after getting sick, he's concerned that his church would be worried. Uh, He didn't want them to be worried. Then Paul is so relieved that Epaphroditus doesn't die, so he's not overcome with sorrow upon sorrow because he's concerned for his welfare. And then in all of this, Epaphroditus was concerned, obviously, for the interest of Christ and his church because, as Paul says, he nearly died in service to both. So in everything Paul says here about Epaphroditus, everyone is concerned for everyone else's interests. And so he says in verse 29... Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. This is the only command in our passage today. Uh, The only call to action. Receive Epaphroditus with all joy and honor such men. In other words... Friends, what I've just written you here, it's not just about Timothy and Epaphroditus. This passage, our text, is about good leaders and how we should relate to them. In particular, Paul is calling us to lift up leaders who have been made low like King Jesus. The claim two weeks ago is that all of us must be made low like King Jesus. These are the kind of leaders to lift up. The the, the ones, for instance, who are not trying to just make much of themselves or seek their own interests because they want to make much of King Jesus by serving his people and their interests. Now, I want to qualify a few things. Um, What I mean by being made low here, I simply mean leaders who are humble, self-denying servants like King Jesus. In the same way that Jesus could have insisted that we all respect him, but he didn't insist. In the same way that Jesus could have looked out primarily for his interests, but he didn't. In the same way that Jesus could have obeyed God until it started to cost him something, but he didn't. He obeyed him even to the point of death. In all these ways, we need leaders who are humble enough to be made low as well. And then when we find these leaders, we are called to lift them up. I'm using this phrase, lift them up, because of that up there, down here dynamic Christ came down from heaven, then he was highly exalted. There's all kinds of stuff like this throughout the book. But, but in Paul's own words here, what I simply mean by that is that we should honor them. We, we should uh, receive their leadership with joy. 
Apparently to Paul, doing this is an important part of pressing on in the upward life. The leaders we look to have a way of either bringing us down as they exalt themselves or bringing us up with them as they're made low uh, for the sake of others. And I just want to sort of point out the elephant in the room. This passage is about leaders and honoring them, and I am one of the leaders of this church. Um, it's a little awkward. Um, it can seem sort of self-serving, like my aim here is to tell you guys to honor me. Um, so I just want to say, I, I certainly want to be the kind of humble, uh, self-giving pastor who's worthy of being lifted up. Please pray for me that I, that I would be that. But more than that, also, I want to invite you to, to, to gently correct me if I'm not. Um, this is not just a plea to honor me. There are also plenty of leaders in our church that we should honor in this way. But, it, but if anything, this passage should give us a standard by which we can assess all spiritual leaders. Uh, this is the kind of ministry that I and, and the elders and the deacons should aspire to. Not to mention, uh, we have a number of needs in our church even for this kind of humble Christ-like leadership. Um, soon, we want to identify a church-planting resident to lead a team that will start a new church. This is our next step, one of them, in our vision as a church. Uh, we're also just beginning a process uh, of searching for an associate pastor, someone to come on staff to serve alongside of me and the rest of the staff members. Beyond that, we're always interested in identifying and developing more deacons and elders. And so with all that in mind, I want to point out two takeaways for us today, and, and both of these takeaways, there will be two of them, both of them come in two parts. Uh, first, we'll see a way to spot leaders like this, what to look for, and then a reason to honor them. And so here's one way to spot them. First, uh, they seek Christ's interest, not their own. It's hard to miss. They seek Christ's interest, not their own. Now, I want to point something out in the text before we apply this, because I'm a little worried we might over-spiritualize this idea of Christ's interest as though we can kind of define that however we want as long as it's something spiritual. I don't think that's the case. I think he's talking about something very specific here. So I want to ask a few questions. If you have your Bible open, I want to ask you a few questions of this text. First, in Paul's mind, why would Timothy be uniquely helpful to this Philippian church? I think it's because Paul says he has no one like him, but notice... In what sense does he have no one like him? Paul had no one else who was, quote, genuinely concerned for the welfare of this particular church and its members. And then just consider, for all these other bad leaders who would have presumably not been concerned with their welfare, why was that? Uh, what was preventing them from caring for this church in the same way that Timothy would have? Paul tells us exactly what it was. It's for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So if you just kind of connect these two dots, what are the interests of Christ? You ready for that? It's a very Danny answer, just so you know. Um, but I think it's Paul's point here. I think Paul is trying to say this. It's local churches. It's the spiritual health and unity of Christ's church here on earth, the crucified King Jesus cares a lot about the health and unity of his church on earth, and so will humble Christ-like leaders who are worth lifting up. 
Uh, Meanwhile, proud leaders who bring us down typically just don't. Uh, They care more about their status as a leader, the contributions that they can be recognized for, and so on. At best, maybe the organizational success, the public esteem of the church organization, which is not the same as the concern for the welfare of the members. And this is so important. I think especially in a culture that's predominantly individualistic, where many leaders are often judged based on competencies in certain areas like public speaking or or vision casting or or else their personality type even. They're they're sort of the fit and in the feel and the culture and the vibe of a church, right? Too often we want to follow impressive, charismatic individuals whether or not they have a proven track record of sincere love for Christ and a genuine concern for the welfare of his church. And meanwhile, according to Paul and consistently throughout the New Testament, we should prioritize these things in the exact opposite way. Humble, Christ-like character is the most important requirement for spiritual leadership. Uh, if, If you look at the qualifications even of elders and deacons that this Paul wrote to this Timothy, actually, in, in 1 Timothy 3, almost all of them are concerning character. That's it. Um, elders do have to be able to teach, which I want to point out is really not even that high of a bar unto itself, right? They don't even have to be like skilled orators. They have to be able to open the Bible, make sense of what it says, and guide others using it spiritually. And then beyond that, they have to be Christ-like. <laughs> As in, here are the qualifications, above reproach, the husband of one wife, right? Not two or three. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, well thought of by outsiders. They can't just be a grouch to their unbelieving neighbors even, right? And then finally, not a recent convert. Now listen to why. Or he says, he may become puffed up with conceit, right? Rather than made low in humility, wrong direction. And he might fall into the condemnation of the devil. This is why new Christians should not serve as elders. is because we need to be confident that these men are humble over an extended period of time. But what if they have like a really popular faith-based podcast? It doesn't matter. Don't care. Okay, but what about people with, with all kinds of relevant training even or experience? Aren't they sort of entitled? No. No. Like King Jesus, who actually was entitled to all things even and did not demand that anyone respect him, we need humble leaders who do not feel entitled to anyone's respect or anyone's trust because what they're after and what they're trying to do is just not about them. And so... If you aspire to be a spiritual leader, please know this is what we're looking for. We're looking for a humble, others-focused heart of service toward the members of this church consistently demonstrated over an extended period of time. I'm going to say that again. A humble, others-focused heart of service toward the members of this church consistently demonstrated over an extended period of time. If you have a super impressive resume, 
tons of experience in large, wildly successful churches, but you don't have that, I'm sorry, we're not interested. You're welcome to get involved in, in any number of ways, but, but you won't be leading anyone. It is just it's far too common for people to seek positions of spiritual leadership in order to treat those positions like a stage for them to perform on. Look at me, and clearly this is, this is not a new problem at all. This problem is at least 2,000 years old, but the leaders who are worth lifting up are the ones who are not concerned about their status or influence. Their concerns have, been, have become the concerns of, of Christ and his church. In fact, the leaders worth lifting up are even willing sometimes to do incredibly difficult things uh, that may even cost them people's respect if those difficult things are in the interest of Christ and the mission of his church here on earth. In Paul's case, look, it even landed him in prison. But next, here, here's why it's important to honor these humble leaders when we do find them. It's because there aren't many of them. There aren't many who live and lead in this way. I want you to notice um, leaders who care more about their interests than Christ's interests seem to Paul kind of like a dime a dozen. <laughs> he could have found plenty of those guys. Um, meanwhile, he had no one like Timothy. And this, this, this is super simple, but it's also really important for us to hear and to take seriously. If we become lax in this area, if we stop caring about who our leaders are and how they live, it's in absolute certainty, more or less, that our church will eventually spin out and implode. Uh, and here's why. It's because humble, Christ-like leaders are really not the norm. They're actually more the exception. Uh, if a church is just left to itself to drift in whatever direction it will, it will never drift toward spiritual health. Uh, it, it will always drift toward pride, toward self-focus, toward status-seeking, because there's a long line of leaders who are eager to lead in that direction, and, and there always has been. Next week, Paul's going to tell us that he actually had tons of reasons for everyone to respect him as a spiritual leader before he knew Christ. And it was actually precisely these things that he now counts as loss. Compared to what? Compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, his Lord. So it's not as though there are some leaders who are just naturally humble and always Christ-like. None of us are. All of us have this same tendency to exalt ourselves. And to be a faithful leader, we have to come face-to-face -face with this self-exalting tendency, and we have to let God bring us low. We have to repent. We have to be humbled so that we can stop seeking our own interests. Right? Far more than pastors who just know their craft, we need pastors who know Christ in this kind of intimate, saving way. So I'll be really, really honest this morning. In some ways, it, it can be intimidating to be a pastor. Uh, not only do some people seem to look at you wondering if you'll be the next leader to fall, uh, not only is this tempting to fear the possibility that maybe you will embarrass your wife and, and kids and family someday, um, but more than that, there's also this, this, just this internal tension with, within yourself could I actually blow this <laughs> uh, and, and really make a mess of my family and my church? 
In some ways, I think it's appropriate to feel that pressure and tension. As Paul says, this type of ministry, it is a noble task. Not to mention, I am just convinced by Scripture, I'm no better than these pastors who've fallen. (laughs) I, like anyone else, have plenty of blind spots which, unchecked, could lead down any number of dark or dangerous paths. But it's also tempting to think, Danny, this is key. If you want to make it and be a leader worth lifting up, you have to be one of these select few leaders who has everything together. And I just don't think that's what Paul is trying to say here either. It's not just that there are only a few leaders worth honoring. That that may be true, but on its own, it's a bit misleading. More importantly, he's saying the few who are worth lifting up and honoring are the ones who are humble and lowly. So you see the tension here in in leadership. The the, the irony is this fear of being made low, of of failing and blowing it, it it, it can actually make us unworthy of being honored. Uh, We can be so afraid of failing and falling, so afraid of being made a fool, we keep insisting, no, 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 we're good leaders, We're we're worth honoring. We see everything through the lens of, well, does it make me look good or not? And that concern for our honor as leaders can easily make leaders unworthy of honoring. It's a dangerous cliff. Many, many leaders have flown right over. I think all of us in our lives are susceptible to it. And so if we find humble leaders who, by God's grace, seem to avoid that cliff, let's honor them. Okay, next, here's another way to spot these leaders. First, Their worth is proven over time. Their worth is proven over time. Um, This is exactly what Paul says about Timothy. You know of his proven worth. Of course, they also must have known of the worth of Epaphroditus. I imagine this is why they sent him to care for Paul of all people. And in doing that, certainly he has proved his worth. He pressed on through sickness, almost dying to care for Paul. And then he rushed back home so no one would worry about him. This is a great way to spot humble leaders worth lifting up. Like a fine wine, their worth goes up with time as they prove over and over that they're not out for their own interest, but they're out for the interest of Christ and his people. I've, I've certainly learned this. I'm, I'm sure many pastors have uh, over the years in ministry. Uh, some people seem incredibly promising. They have tons of potential for leadership. They're winsome. They're very relational, very competent. It just seems like their worth is is a sure thing until the global pandemic comes or or, or until they get distracted by politics Uh, or, or until they just get unsettled about something and a whole different person comes out, all trust goes out the window, whatever it may be. The elders, I can say, we consider this one of our most important responsibilities is to to seek out, to identify, to develop, and then to recommend to you, the members, our spiritual leaders. And it's such a joy uh, to have, over the last five years, raised up a number of them and now to serve with many of them. In particular, Carl, who did our call to worship, comes to mind. Um, Greg, who also serves with us as an elder. Uh, Lucas Gallagher and John Haynes, uh, who now just recently have started serving as elder candidates. Uh, Christy Haynes, who serves on staff, overseeing our uh, student and children's ministries and leading all the teams associated with them. Uh, Birdie Aulis and Buck Knit, who serve us in, as, as deacons in countless practical ways. All these brothers and sisters have faithfully served over extended periods of time. They either have 
or they are in the process of proving their worth in all the ways that Paul's talking about here. And today, I'm excited to share that there is a leader very interested in exploring our church planting residency, potentially leading a team of members from our church to start a new church. And I will give you a hint. You certainly know of his proven worth. I'm talking about Greg Aulis. I'm excited to share that. Really excited about it in general. Uh, you want to clap? I think we should. That'd be great. That'd be great. Amen. Um, Greg and his wife, Lisa, have been prayerfully considering a path to vocational ministry, and for a number of reasons, it seems like this uh, could be a great direction for them to do that. In light of our passage, it seemed like it would be a huge missed opportunity not to say something about this today. Uh, so, Greg, thank you uh, for the ways you've served us so faithfully as an elder, as our elder. Uh, your concern for the spiritual welfare of each of us is very evident. And I can't think of a better way to honor you than for us to entrust you with this incredibly vital next step in the mission of our church. In so many ways, we started Redemption Church with a vision to plant other churches. In so many ways, it's almost like we're just getting started. We're just getting there. Uh, and it's really incredible to see what God has done, particularly in Greg's life, to, to lead the way to this conversation. Now, I want to just clarify a couple of leadership things. What I'm not saying is that this is all a done deal. Greg and Lisa are planting a church. Don't go there. Uh, but we are taking specific steps to seriously consider this. Uh, we'll have more to share, I imagine, in the weeks ahead. Uh, we're also soon going to be sending out just a little feedback form to the members to just hear a number of thoughts from you guys and get input on a few important next steps that are coming up in the life of the church, so keep an eye out for that. But, but here's the point. If you've been watching Greg these past few years, this is how it works with humble Christ-like leaders. The longer they serve and the more you get to know them, the more evident their worth becomes. And now, here's why it's important for us to honor these proven leaders. It's very simple. It's because they're worth trusting. They're worth trusting. This is, I think, the most unfortunate consequence of the leadership crisis we're in at this point in the church. Uh, whether it's understandable in some cases or, or maybe not, Many just feel like they cannot trust a spiritual leader. Uh, I, I would venture to guess most Christians, most professing Christians even, are without a pastor who actually knows them in a personal, intimate way. Someone who's observed their life and relationships and over time has been there through many seasons. Uh, increasingly, many Christians are not even committed to a church that they share in this upward life with at all. And this is where I think on one hand we have to empathize. Uh, many of you have probably seen the underbelly of this passage. Uh, you've been hurt by leaders who are out for their own interests. You've been bit by one of these dogs that Paul is going to tell us to look out for in next week's passage. And please don't hear anything that I say this morning as a dismissal of, of that hurt. That, that is, again, a very old problem. It's, it's an incredibly valid spiritual burden to carry. And yet, on the other hand, I think we do also have to insist there are some faithful shepherds, pastors, elders. Uh, there are some who have proven their worth in this way over time. 
Uh, there are some who are genuinely concerned for, for our spiritual welfare and the welfare of churches like ours. And it's particularly important that we find these brothers, that we honor them. And the best way I think to do that is, is, to, is to actually trust them, to trust them. This is important, I think, for our spiritual health personally and also for the health of our church. Just to hear it said, we can trust pastors and elders. We can. And, and hear me, not just to lead our organizations or to cast a vision, right, but to care for our souls. We can trust them. Now, if at any point one of them proves unworthy of this trust, Paul also gives uh, Timothy, actually, again, a process for addressing that. He says in 1 Timothy 5, as for those who persist in sin, referring to elders, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And so certainly what we should not do is just trust an elder because they're an elder or because they're in a particular position of spiritual leadership. This is so huge. I just want to get this across. Our aim as elders is not just to get you to trust us. Our aim is to equip you to discern what is good and right according to God's word, according to scripture, so that together we can hold fast to the word of life, as Paul called us to last week even. But when we find leaders who do seem, by God's grace, to care more about Christ than themselves, it's important we honor them because they are worth trusting, and the truth is many aren't. In my opinion, this is also one simple, uh, compelling, practical reason that I think we should stick with one service. It's simple, but it's because getting to know people, um, identifying maturity in leaders, giving them time to prove their worth, first, it just takes a lot of time, but more than that, is also far more important than simply growing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger as fast as possible at all costs. Uh, I have no doubt. I mean, we have a ton of very talented people in our church. I, I have no question that we could certainly start a second service. I imagine in a year or two's time it would be full as well. But there are serious dangers, I think, in taking a church from literally nothing to this huge operation in, in five to six years' time. <laughs> because before long, you need more humble leaders than you have. And so you're constantly tempted to lower the bar or redefine the mission so our church can keep growing, our church can keep growing, our church can keep growing, and it causes all kinds of problems. I'm just convinced our churches will never be healthy if our goal is to grow them at a pace which makes this kind of trust and joyful reception of spiritual leadership basically impossible. So church, let's, let's go about ministry in a way that allows time for leaders to be developed uh, and then tested and then proven faithful so that we can trust them with this kind of confidence. Uh, especially in, our, in today's climate, this kind of confidence in humble Christ-like leaders, it's vital. And again, it shouldn't be entirely surprising to us because Paul seemed to think it was vital even long, long ago. So in closing, as we get to know prospective leaders in the life of our church, as the members get to know elder candidates, or deacons, or church planting residents, associate pastor candidates, as we consider what to look for in our spiritual leaders, let's put this kind of others-focused humility at the top of our list. I want to be clear, we'll never be perfect with this. We are certainly not immune to bad leadership here at all. 
but it will, it will certainly help, I think, if we give ourselves to what God has called us to here, and that is namely to lifting up leaders who have been made low like King Jesus.